Welcome back to Bombadale's Porch. I could attempt something exciting, but that's that was pretty that's Nate's uh, Nate's territory is the interesting and unpredictable intro. That's better than exciting. I think that's it's better than exciting. Unpredi- maybe unpredictable. Is unpredictable. Because <laughs> I don't even know what I'm going <laughs> to yes. say half the time. <laughs> but we are glad you are joining us once again on the porch. It is just the two of us today. And we're a man down. We are a man down. Uh, apparently, vacation Bible school. See, I was just going to turn off the AC. I was like, I'll bet you that's about to kick on again here soon. I was wondering if the 3D printer would be joining us on the recording, but you turned that yes. off, so that's good. So fortunately, that did finish, <laughs> which 3D printing is awesome, it by is. the way. How fun is that? It, I think it's super cool. I love in sci-fi, and here we go, totally mm-hmm. unplanned uh, rabbit holes. That's that's this whole show, Welcome. right? So <laughs> I love in sci-fi how they've taken the notion of printing, 3D printing, and they've just gotten rid of like the whole framework. There was a mm. show I was watching. I uh, forget what it was. Uh, this shows that maybe George Clooney did something in the last year or so. It was about, you know, spaceship going out and life on earth is interrupted, whatnot, but the spaceship is coming back and it runs into like ice meteor storm, something stuff gets broken basically. And um, they survive it. They're glad they survive. And then what they deploy the 3d printer, which is just like this little mini like a drone ship that goes out and just starts printing mm-hmm. all the repairs. And, uh, you know, they didn't have to put anything in a box. They just send out the printer. Um, yeah. 3d printing is awesome. <laughs> it is, it is a fun connection between imagination and reality. <laughs> you know, it's, all those years as a kid when you're like, Oh, I wish I had a fill in the blank. Well now, I mean, we were just talking about this before we prayed and you pressed record. Um, boy, like, if, if AI takes off in a way mm-hmm. and, and so AI being a great interface, but if it gets paired with, you know, applied science, something in the real world, yeah. it'd be pretty cool to say, Hey, hold up your phone mm-hmm. to show the AI what I need. I'm, I need something. I need a part and I need it to fix this part of my lawnmower and it's this piece. And yeah. then the thing goes and does it. That'd be pretty, pretty cool. I do know that that's already made a splash in the 3d printing world where you just <laughs> throw out concepts, combine this toy and that widget. And then, yeah, that's what I want it to look like. Print. It's like chat GPT, except there's the, the imagery ones that we've played around with here. Right. Combined with a printer. Exactly. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Uh, yeah, yeah. The future is going to look strange. <laughs> that is for sure. Oh, you know, we always have the sci-fi does a great job. I think of, uh, visualizing the warnings about what could happen. For those of you who don't like sci-fi, that's that's really what it's about. There is some spaceshipery, but it's really about um, good stuff. Is about personal lessons, social society lessons, and whatnot. But you do, I think sometimes there's there's occasional sci-fi that comes out and it shows the future. It's not even it's not dystopian, it's not utopian, it's just clunky. And it's like <laughs> that's probably more like what's going to happen if the Lord tarries. <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of rust. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Was it was it you that was talking to me the other day about if uh, our civilization was abandoned for a couple thousand years, almost think- nothing would remain. Oh, I don't think that was me. That's okay. interesting. Cause just so much of what we, we, we build with how we build, it would just rust, disintegrate. It would just be, it'd be gone. I, Only stones remain. I do wonder about that though. And I have wondered about that, that there is, um, we build things up yeah, and then left alone. Nature's 
And it functions all tumbling down. Always bring it down. There's rust. There's other things, or the the, the jungle takes over. But isn't mm-hmm. it? It's kind of like we build things up, and then nature will tear them back down. But it doesn't tear it down to like atoms. It's, there's a point where it stops. It's like it, nature takes its course, and it, it seems to always either go back mm-hmm. to desert, jungle. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it, or water. You know, uh, it's just fascinating about about the world, the the universe God has made, and the world we get to live in. Right, and death, and life, and rebirth, and resurrection, always mm. connected together. Which is a perfect segue. Not exactly, but <laughs> we'll go with that. But it does. It does actually. Uh, when when you think about history um, and, and just the cyclical nature of, of that. It's interesting to see how uh, there, there are things that, that are so unique about our time and moment, and yet there are also some things that are not unique, mm. but they are old problems recast in a new light. And you brought it uh, a, a topic that we'll dive into in just a moment. And what fascinated me about it as you began to describe it was I kept thinking, as you described, a condition explored initially a lot by monastics in, in physical isolation that has overtaken a culture that is more connected than ever. And I was hearing in the back of my head uh, those, those famous words of Jacques Ellul. Uh, we've brought him up a couple times here on the podcast, that, that French theologian slash futurist. When he looked at the force of technique, of technology and society, and he said, inevitably, what this is going to do is is lead to specialization and isolation, mm. and that that's going to be the effect on society. And we're going to have to figure out how to cope with just pronounced consequences from those two realities. And and this topic that you you brought up really does impinge on both, and uh, it was, was actually introduced uh, to a larger audience recently by a speaker who, who saw in this uh, a key a key to understanding mm-hmm. and illuminating the way for the, the, the advance in the future of the 21st century. I'm excited about a couple things. One, I'm excited to see if what we're going to try here works because we haven't <laughs> done this before on the show, play a clip, so to speak. Um, the other reason I'm excited, we're going to use technology to critique <laughs> technology. <laughs> the, uh, the gentleman who we're going to play a, just a little clip of here shortly. Um, he might, he might, be a familiar name uh, to some of our listeners, and he might be a new name to others. His name is Douglas Murray. He's a journalist, writer, speaker. Um, he's I, I've I don't know if this is the right way to describe him. He kind of he's like a, a rhetorical pugilist, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a rhetorical Muhammad Ali. I almost said Mike Tyson, but there's an elegance. There's something about the British language that right? you can deliver body blows and it sounds so sophisticated. And it's yep. like, boy, he just devastated his All opponent. All their daggers have elaborate blades. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, He's written a number of books. That's how I became familiar with him. I would say probably one of his more famous videos of the last year because he does a lot of um, speeches and whatnot, uh, but was probably where he did a debate. He and Matt Taibbi went mm. on stage and debated um, the state of the free press with Malcolm Gladwell. Um, Gladwell I think that's who he is from the <laughs> New York Times. Now, Malcolm's not bad. Malcolm's a d- smart guy. And and now Matt Taibbi is a wonderful journalist, not or not not an eloquent uh, speaker. He kind of has to think things through like most of us. Right. Um, and Malcolm decided he was going to, instead of debating the content of what Matt 
Tybee was saying. He decided he was going to basically be condescending and demeaning. Oh. And Douglas Murray put up with this for a little while. There are some great videos online where people have gone through and done like a play-by-play. -play. <laughs> <laughs> watching Murray just dismantle his opponents with with elegance and with uh, with style. <laughs> um, so that's the guy. He's he's um, he he is not a believer. He is a conservative. He's been accused of a lot of things because he has some very specific opinions about immigration, not that he's against it in Europe. He's just like, we ought to be doing this thoughtfully and in a way that's not just thoughtful to the cultures that we're inviting people into, but thoughtful to the people that we're inviting in. Because if you don't think this through, it's going to lead to rebellion and riots. He said this several years <laughs> <Hypothetically>, ago. <laughs> that wouldn't happen for real, would it? He wrote a book about this several years ago. And then, of course, when this the horrible events in France have taken off in the last few months, um, I think he's avoided saying, I'll tell you so, by saying, I'm going to avoid saying, I told you so. <laughs> but uh, anyway, an interesting thinker for sure. And and so I was listening uh, to a clip on uh, earlier this week from the National Review. And National Review, I guess, does a con and they probably do a number of conferences. But they did a conference earlier this year, and they'd invited Murray Douglas Murray to come and speak. His speech was about ten minutes. We are not going to obviously play that whole thing here. We're just going to play a couple of minutes. He is speaking into a what you call a socio political context. He's talking about right versus left, and he spent the uh, first seven minutes of his speech pointing out that this this vision this view of the world that the left is has is is handed to us and in some ways they're not just handed they are forcing it upon us his point is that it has it's a group of odd issues they aren't necessarily connected philosophically um but he does say the reason it's compelling is that they're offering a solution, a total solution. So if you wouldn't mm -hmm. mind press and play here, Chris, we'll let yeah. him do the talking for a bit and then we'll take it from there. So having given that roadmap and having connected it to how we view various hierarchies of, of, of jobs and works, uh, then yeah, he proceeds to say the following. Mm. And this tells us something I think very revealing about what we actually are prioritizing in modern America. Now, what should we be doing? Um, it seems to me, and I, I, I've been writing about this recently, it seems to me that we are at great risk in America in particular at the moment of falling into what in the Middle Ages was known as acidi. Acidi was a, a condition that um, writers including Chaucer and Dante and others wrote about. It was about a sort of listlessness. And in the Middle Ages, acidi was recognized to be very dangerous for an individual and utterly fatal for a society. That is, the question of what we should be doing was effectively unaddressed. Now, I was, I'm not checking my text messages, I promise. Um, I was very interested in a poll the Wall Street Journal carried out earlier this week, which some of you I'm sure will have seen, which speaks to this issue of acidity. Um, just in the last 25 years, the last quarter of a century, living memory for all of us, the number of Americans who said that patriotism was, quote, very important to them, fell from 70%, 70% to 38%. Number of people who said that religion was very important to them fell from 62% to just 27 Um the number of Americans who believe that tolerance 
is an important virtue, fell from 80% four years ago to just 58% today. Four years. Four years to lose that number of Americans who believe in the idea of tolerance. I would submit that when we address issues like meritocracy, we on the right have to bear in mind the following single thing, and I'll finish with that before handing over to Vivek. We have to recognize that the left has offered a totalistic explanation for human behavior. A totalistic explanation that, as I say, you will not be free until all of these odd things we've selected show representation. You must fight, and you must struggle, and you must strive, and you must insult, and you must degrade, and you must cut people off in your lives, and much more. That's something to do. That's something to do. It is an extremely ugly thing to do, but it's something to do. And we, on the right, it seems to me, need to spend much more of our time not simply picking apart what the left is saying that we should do, but providing answers of our own, saying this is what it would look like to have a successful life in the 21st century. This is what the aim should be. You shouldn't be playing the games that the left has invited you to play, totally unwinnable games. You should be doing the following things. That seems to me, and maybe we can get on to this, to be an aspiration worth struggling for. First of all, now that now that he's been speaking with that voice, Chris, we're going to sound particularly lame. <laughs> we're going to, yeah. we're going to uh, with that, on that note. On that note, it's like great great preachers that uh, have Scottish or British or any number of accents. Sometimes even from the subcontinent, it's like my goodness, I can't compete with that. <laughs> but but I bet Chris, if we would if we would broad start like doing a marketing campaign to get more listeners in Britain. They might find our accents quaint anyway, or cute. Uh, they probably might. not cool. Rebellious. That's what I probably <laughs> right. would find our accents. Yeah. Well, I think I, as I was listening to that, clearly he's talking about a political and um, in a social context. But I thought, you know, there's some truth there uh, about about us as Christians, as lights in a dark world. But, but I wanted to go back. There's a word that, um, he, he pronounced it, um, acidy. Yes. Acidy. Acidy. Uh, yes. And, and so I, I went and started, I wondered what this thing was. I hadn't heard this word before. And so as I looked around online, um, interestingly enough, there's like one community on earth that seems particularly interested in this word and they pronounce it acidia, acidia or acidia. And it's, it's the Catholic church. <laughs> I didn't find a whole lot of Protestant writing about this or anyone else, but I think it's because it comes from fifth century. It's uh it started, I think, as you mentioned earlier, um, monks, they, they suffered from this condition and where this this term started to bubble up, not in pop culture, but, you know, in certain, you know, Catholic blogs and websites was as we went into lockdown and and what what those what those fellas and ladies that were writing were seeing was they, they were being reminded of conditions that they'd never experienced. But but monks who'd lived in isolation 
had had experienced some of these things. So just to kind of give a little background to our readers and then we'll, or our listeners, excuse me, and then we'll dig into, um, you know, some of the applications for us in our families and our churches and here in our community. The, um, and I'm just going to do a little, not too much reading, just a little bit of reading here. Um, uh, Essity is described by, by one writer as it's, it's a state of boredom, listlessness. You heard Douglas talk about that fear, uncertainty. Um, John Cassian was a monk and theologian. He wrote in the early fifth century about this ancient Greek emotion called acidy. Um, and he described it as a mind seized by this emotion. It's, uh, he described it in quote, horrified at where he is, disgusted with his room. It does not allow him to stay still in his cell, fancy talk for his room, or devote any effort to, to reading. Talked about um, fatigue, talked about um, uh, a sense of almost apathy. And I think in some ways, all of us might be able to relate to that a little bit. And what's interesting is what causes this is, is, um, is the, it's not so much uh, what causes is isolation, emotional isolation, physical isolation. It's also the result um, of, of really there's what I need to do, the task set before me, and I just don't want to do it. I want to find something else to do. And I, boy, that's something I can relate to. I need to, I don't know, I, I, here's my, I need to go paint the kid's room. And believe me, for months, I will find anything else to do besides paint the room. And I have all the tools. I have all the paint. I just don't want to paint Rats. the room. <laughs> you run out of excuses. That's right. <laughs> if Nita listens to this episode, she's going to be like, aha, now, now I, I know what it. to do. <laughs> the uh, a couple other interesting things about this is that um, Cassian, uh, that same fella, translated uh, the, a list of sins into Latin. And a later 6th century edit of that gave us the seven deadly sins that I think we've all heard about. And in this list, um, acidia was subsumed into the word sloth, which we now associate with laziness. But I don't think I think that actually took some of what was intention originally intended in this word, took away from it. The um, when we this particular article talked about the isolation that we all experienced in the pandemic and said that it created social conditions that approximated those of desert monks. If you think about it, we were all kept some, away from one yeah. another. And um, he said there may not have been demons, perhaps, but social media did offer a barrage of bad and misleading news, contributing that sense of anxiety, social distancing, limited physical contact, lockdowns, constricted physical space and movement, working from home or having lost your job entirely bo or entirely both. It um upended routines and habits. And, and what it struck me kind of jumping back over to Douglas Murray's comments there, what he described is we need to, and he was talking about political terms, instead of simply tearing down the worldview of the other side, we need to show the alternative. There's a better way to live. There's a better way to, uh, and, and, and that in a sense is kind of this antidote to this condition. And so this just got me thinking, I think as a lot of believers, we, we of course went through the pandemic like others. Um, now, as we were talking earlier in some quarters, people were like, well, I kind of liked it. I, it. My life didn't change at all. Right. Cause it already got self-isolated. Right. Um, but, but how does this, first of all, you know, is this something that's valid? 
uh, it's a, you know, after all, this is, this is going back to the fifth and fifth and sixth centuries, you know, and here we are in 2023. Is that, is this something valid? And I think from your introductory remarks, you might say yes, but I'll let you expound on that. <laughs> and if it is valid, as Christians, this is something we ought to be aware of. And, and, and should this certainly doesn't change our belief about who God is and the truth that he has revealed about himself through his word and through the natural revelation all about us. But does it, does it in some way impact the way that we uh, interact with, with our fellow believers in our, in our church homes? Um, does it interact, does it in, impact the way in which we interact with those that live in our homes with us, our families and the community around us? So I've asked about five questions there. I'll <laughs> let you pick one. I'll start with the one you didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best ones. But yes. Uh, I think one of the things that strikes me about this is when you hear that the description of that word, when you hear it, it teased out and the, the causes that are identified as being behind it, it, it's a word that resonates, I think, as, yeah, that's so true. I think one of the reasons you don't hear that word very much anymore is because we've replaced all of our words for human conditions with therapeutic language. Mm. And so we, yeah. we would look at those same uh, fact patterns. Okay, a general sense of malaise, a lack of motivation, excessive fatigue, etc. You, know, you, you would lay out all those patterns and you would immediately identify it as something to be addressed through cognitive you know, behavioral therapy and some form of medication to try to regulate what's assumed to be a chemical imbalance of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that is where we'd immediately go. And, and there is something about old language that understood that much of what afflicts man has to do with the heart and, and was language designed to try to articulate that. Uh, some of that language being explicitly biblical and some of that language being what you might call uh, biblical adjacent, mm-hmm. where it's trying to summarize uh, what you would see the Bible describe the human condition to be. So I, I, I love to see words like this resurfacing. We understand um, as Christians that anthropology doesn't change, right? Human nature doesn't change. We are, we are born in Adam's race, and by the grace of God through faith, we may become of the race of Christ, uh, through, through faith in him. Uh, but we still drag around our old <laughs> fleshly nature with us. And so anthropology, apology doesn't change, which means that is as true today as it always has been that no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. So for, uh, a long way of answering your question, that would be to say, yes, I do think that this is applicable to today. I do think it was probably something that particularly Catholicism was tuned more into because of the role that um, effective works plays in their understanding of of salvation and of the Christian life. I think that adds an urgency to that. Um, the connection, especially in, in, in Roman Catholicism, though the Protestants dabbled in this too, between sort of the, the church and the state and, and a hardworking populace is a measure of a godly populace, is a measure of a healthy nation, is a measure of, you know, all these things tended to be conflated. <clears throat> I do think it's important uh, that this concept is brought home to our families, but I think we need to maybe locate it perhaps in a different place than some of some of these authors might put it. Because this is not our attempt to gain merit or favor with God. This is not going to be attached to um, our value or worth before him, etc. We don't want to become a works-based mm. religion. You mentioned the seven deadly sins, for yeah. example. And it turns out 
all sins are deadly. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you've broken the law at any point, you've broken the whole thing, says James. Uh, every single sin is sufficient to send us into judgment. Uh, and in Christ, no sin is sufficient to send us into ju- into judgment. Uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we don't look at something at, like sloth and say, if we are not being effective producers in society, if we are not being constantly if effectively engaged in work, and I use that word because, as you mentioned, sloth implies more than just lack of action, but it's yeah. wrong action. It's misdirected action. Um, we, we need to be able to rest in the grace of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, but that ought to motivate us as a gratitude response, as a love response to desire that our lives would be fruitful. Um, not a fruit that is produced by the flesh, a fruit that's being produced by the spirit, but it's being produced in our fleshly existence. And so you, you can't have the fruit of the spirit, for example, in a state of complete inaction, how is the spirit producing love in a biblical sense if it's not love that does something? Mm. How is love producing or how is the spirit producing joy if it's not a joy in the in a context, in a context of circumstances and experiences right down the line? How can you be gentle if it's not towards something, um, etc.? And so the, the fruit of the spirit manifests itself in, in action. And I do think that this uh, addresses what... Um, what I think a lot of people feel and we've lost a word for Yeah, uh, the word angst comes to mind. That's a, a mm. common word that uh, indefinite sense of impending doom, mm. <laughs> right? That can be paralyzing. But I think this is perhaps a, even a more specific, more helpful way of articulating that there is such a profound isolation today um, among so many where they, they just cannot, figure out how to get underneath their feet a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. They're just almost that sense of always in free fall. And they're just, they're waiting. I don't know what's at the end of this. I'm afraid it's nothing. <laughs> like I almost wish I'd hit the ground, but it's just, I'm always falling and never, never knowing where I'm at. And, and that got me thinking as we try to import this into our home, we want our homes to be places of uh, of industry, we want, want our homes to be places of, of godly activity. We don't want our we don't want the rest of our homes to be um, laziness. We don't want it because that's not the biblical kind of rest we're seeking for, right? The eternal state is not going to be sitting around a cloud sighing contentedly, right? We're going to be engaged in work, but it will be a restful kind of work. And I would, uh, I would see as a secret to the success of this being um, a very close connection between the activity of our homes and an understanding positively, like you were just describing, of what life is about and, and and seeing our children being able to see those two things matched in our activity that, okay, the reason dad does what he does is because he believes what he believes. And so I kind of wanted to maybe pitch that back to you and say, how do you or how would you like to succinctly, memorably communicate to your children uh, here, here is what the motto of the Christian life is. Here is the direction of the Christian life. We understand, like in a Westminster Catechism kind of way, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy mm-hmm. him forever. That sort of a concept we understand, bringing it down into the gospel, that our desire is to be disciples of Jesus Christ and to follow in his example. Um, how would you turn that from a 
purpose statement, if you will, mm-hmm. into a livable mission statement that motivates specific action. It's interesting you mentioned that because that's one of the things crossed my mind. Um, you know, the chief end of man is to glorify God. Um, I think that gets that biblical truth, first and foremost, biblical truth. And it is absolutely true. But I think what can happen sometimes as you, and I've heard this, I think I have even might even share with you and Caleb, you know, be in a Bible study or in a life group. And <laughs> people will be, people of God will be interacting, and which I think is fantastic. It's the whole reason we get together talking about God's word. But when someone kind of, they're making a point and it's great. And then they kind of run out of gas. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. it all happens to us all. A lot of times they'll just kind of say, they'll, they'll tag that on. Well, you know, our purpose is to glorify God, right? And it's kind of like, well, that's true. Absolutely. Um, but what can be challenging, I think, for those of us that are in discipleship roles, discipling our children or maybe even other other men in the faith and in your, your role as a youth pastor with youth and, of course, in the church more broadly, um, I think some people are like, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I glorify God in everything I do? Um, even the the smoke of the torment of the damned will rise before him in the th- that brings glory to him too, right? So <laughs> right. what do I do? And so I think that that yeah. that it, with that in mind, so it, 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 that's this mm-hmm. is where I think discipleship the rubber of meet the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you, it, you get move, footsteps on top of yeah. that? On top of that maxim. And, uh, and I think, uh, one of the things with, with our kids that we are working hard on is, is that, is the love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. And, and of course, love your neighbor as yourself. And these are not new verses to any porch listener, right? These are things that have, have mm-hmm. been, percolating probably in their hearts and certainly in ours for years is because Jesus summer. I mean, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He, that is his answer. Right. And then even when he's asked about, well, who's my neighbor? You know, the answer is the story of the good Samaritan. And he's Aren't you cheeky. (laughs) Do you really want to (laughs) know? And, uh, and so I think, I think that, that coming back to that love for the Lord. And it is interesting how even that is elusive. Hmm. Um, if you think about those, those that we love the dearest, um, I love Anita. I don't always act like it. And I love my kids. I don't always act like it. And, and so this is an area though, that, uh, with the Lord, I love the Lord, but I don't always act like it. And to my shame, I probably often don't act like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think getting back to what, um, in Psalm, Psalm 51 as reminded of earlier, you know, this is a prayer of my heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, there's a joy to this walk with the Lord that I think is, it's this, the scripture is not only chock full of it, but I think it's mm-hmm. a, it's a yearning of the heart of the believer to delight in the Lord. And you see these words, we've talked about the delight in the law. These are, these are, these are emotional words. And sometimes in our, in our, our, um, in our effort to be people of the book, uh, I think it's you, we can inadvertently diminish emotion. We should never be driven by emotion, but we are emotional beings. It's part of who we, who God made us. And, uh, and not to say that delight and joy are strictly emotions, but they are something to be experienced. And it's something that, that joy of the Lord should be our strength. And so I think with the kids and I'm, I, one of the things that we're, we're endeavoring to do is to, 
is to focus on that joy, that joy of the Lord. And joy doesn't always mean you're giddy and happy, by the way. Um, with joy comes peace, love, joy, peace. You can see I'm kind of working my way through, <laughs> through yeah. the fruit of the spirit anyway. Um, another thing I think too, so joy is something to strive for and, and pray to the Lord for and find our joy in him, not the circumstances that he is so faithfully walking us through. Sometimes they're fun and sometimes they're not, but the joy, his joy uh, remains the same. I would say, so not just striving for joy, but rejecting lukewarmness. Um, yeah, I immediately, of course, the church of Laosia comes to mind, right? But rejecting lukewarmness, I think there is a lukewarmness that dominates, um, our culture. I, uh, in one of the articles I was reading on this, they actually say, do you, what are the three signs that you are suffering from this, uh, mm-hmm. acidia? And one is loss of joy. The other is a lukewarmness of comfort. And the third is an indifferent indifference towards the nations, including your own. I think those are interesting. Uh, the part um, that I thought was really interesting about the lukewarmness, and I'm just going to borrow a couple lines here. When um, we live in one of the most blessed in many ways, protected, comfortable civilizations to ever have existed. And within that privilege, and I don't use that word in a social justice kind of way. I just mean it's an honor. Thank you, Lord. It's a privilege to be born here instead of so many of the other places where it would be much more difficult. But with that privilege, there comes often a lukewarmness. When life is easy, there's no need for God. And sometimes as Christians, I think we fall into that. Um, when our, not saying that any of us doesn't worry about finances, but when the numbers are adding up in the right way, when the retirement is lining up in the right way, uh, it's, it's easy to fall into, we, wa- we are not necessarily having to walk by faith because I can walk by sight. And it's much more comfortable to feel like I'm in control and I know it's coming, but we're not called unto that. We're called unto, unto walk by faith, not by sight. And so I think that lukewarmness is something that we run the risk of. And by the way, having lived overseas, um, this is not something to make Americans feel guilty about where God allowed put, placed you. He placed you here for a reason. This is not a guilt trip. It's simply a call to gratitude, but not just gratitude, but don't trust in the things, the blessings he's given to you. Trust in him. And so joy, uh, seeking joy, the joy of the Lord, rejecting lukewarmness, the lukewarmness that comes with kind of a, uh, a casual apathy that I think is easy to fall into. And then something I think really is important that brings to life um, the joy of knowing the Lord is to to fight the indifference about what's happening, not just around the world, but about the person across the street. About the person that when you parked your car downtown to go to the theater or go to the restaurant, the four people that you walked by and really tried to avoid. And I get it. I, I work in a lot of metropolitan areas and the, you know, the homelessness is not a U.S. problem. I mean, it is, but it's not limited to our, our country. It's all over the world. And there's a distraction and indifferent, a, a, a temptation is probably the right word to say to, to use of, I, I'm, I don't want to get harmed. I don't want to be bothered. And I don't know what to do. I don't want to enable all these different things, right? Um, which may, leads us to kind of avoid eye contact and walk by. But um, in that moment, the Spirit might be calling you. God's Spirit might be leading you to engage with that person. And maybe not. But I think don't let it become indifference. And it's such a temptation to be indifferent. And I, I think, too, there are a lot of folks 
I, I have a, I have a friend. He's not a believer. He's definitely a socialist. He would say he's a socialist. I would say you're a commie, uh, but <laughs> old friends, decades now. And in fact, we were just on the phone catching up this week. He doesn't live locally. And, um, and I remember at one dinner we were having, um, we're both at a conference and we got together for, for a nice steak dinner and, um, and we enjoy debate. Now he knows where I'm, I come from theologically. He does not come from the same camp. Um, and so we'll have those discussions, but often more often than not, he just likes the debate. So we'll debate politics. We'll debate social issues. And anyway, at one point, um, he talked about um, how he loves people. I said, you love people, but you can't stand individuals. How do you, re- how do you reconcile that? He says, I don't, because that's exactly right. I love people. I love causes, but I can't stand individuals. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> and I, it's amazing how many Marxists throughout history and communists have had that exact same problem. It's kind of their MO, right? Oh, my goodness. The, the I, greatest lover of humanity. That is what I am. I've just never met a person I like. Yeah. And, and, and here's, I think... That mindset. He you, likes you. You can have the, oh, he likes me well enough. There you go. But well if, done. But if somehow. He made, know, he made for an now. exception for you. <laughs> <laughs> but that cognitive dissonance that is essential to hold that. I love people, but I can't stand individuals. Um, you know, it's kind of the old joke mm-hmm. about liberals versus conservatives, right? Conservatives love the individual, don't, don't trust people, and liberals love the group and can't stand, don't trust the individual. Um, but I do think as Christians, we can get caught up in that too. Mm-hmm. God so loved the world. He doesn't particularly like that guy. <laughs> um, and uh, clearly God loves the individual. And tragically, so many of individuals will have rejected him. And, and I think sometimes that can lead to that kind of indifference about the world, indifference about the, the mission that Jesus gave us to go into all the world, to preach mm-hmm. the gospel. But that is an, it's based on individuals too. I mean, that, 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 that mission to go and make disciples, those are people. And so I think, um, long winded, but we're on a podcast after all. So we've got to be a little long winded. Um, and a porch at that. That's right. That's right. Uh, and our friend Caleb is not with us. So we got to fill all the airtime that, that, that we now have <laughs> the, uh, but, but I think, uh, just a couple of areas, there's, you know, you ask a question, there's so many ways to answer that, but I guess I, I like, I focusing just here. What comes to mind is the joy of the Lord is our strength. What comes to mind is a rejection of lukewarmness. We know Jesus doesn't like lukewarm. He's going to spit that out of his mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Be hot or cold. Um, so we want to be in the hot camp. And, uh, and in terms of that, that hot for him is, is the, the fruit of the spirit focusing on those things. And, and then also rejecting indifference, rejecting indifference to the world. And, and some people that are, it's interesting too. I think all of us have been caught up in this good missions conference or something. And man, I'm going to give, I'm going to go maybe not full time, uh, but I'm going to go when I can. Um, and yet our neighbors have never heard the gospel from our lips uh, your mission field is right here. And so maybe that maybe a combination of those three things would be a good place to start with, with our kids to try to combat this sense of malaise, the sense of angst, the sense of, of hand wringing that I think a lot of us have fallen into, um, that, that apparently the, uh, the fifth century theologians and Christians already had a name for, and we just didn't know until <laughs> Mr. Murray introduced it to us a few months, a few weeks ago. Indeed. And in many ways, you could almost summarize what you were saying in the two great commandments to love God and to love others. Um, 
there's just so much of the heart of the Christian faith packed in there. You framed it the negative, not being indifferent uh, and and remembering that our neighbor, uh, Jesus was almost making the opposite point in the parable to Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Like your neighbor isn't just the guy that lives next to you. He's also the Samaritan and almost the opposite is needed in our culture where your neighbor isn't just the guy you saw at the Christian conference on a placard they passed around that you could give support money to. Your neighbor's actually the guy who also lives next to you. <laughs> uh, don't forget about uh, him or her. Um, and then just the way that that has to then come out through the fruit of the spirit in, in lives of, of concrete action. Um, you know, Paul, I think how many times he exhorted people to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called to not earn, to not, not trying to become worthy of the calling, but just to, to live every day consistent with this great salvation that we have. As he wrote to Timothy, that the goal of his instruction was that we would have a pure love, we'd have a good conscience, and that we would have a sincere faith, right? That, that those are sort of three pillars that the, that the Christian life stands on. You can go back to the Old Testament. Uh, what is God looking for? That we would do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. You, you see so many of these, uh, they often come in threes, <laughs> these little summary mm. statements of, what characterizes the activity of the Christian life. And then I think you can push that even further then and say, okay, how does that normatively look in different seasons of life? And so import that in for our children. You're the, you're in the season of childhood. What does that look like for you? That looks like honoring your father and mother and learning about God, knowing him as the one who's forgiven your sins and who is your father and letting God's word dwell in you richly and learning how to overcome the evil one. That looks like a season of preparation and stewardship that you are gathering together the resources and making the most of the abilities that God has given you so that you might be able to fulfill what he calls you to in in your adult season of life and your Mm -hmm. independent season of life. And so work hard, labor hard, uh, to to learn not to fear anything but God, and to to learn how to to challenge yourself and take courage, and, and those two I, you mentioned joy is such a, a common theme, and I think that's one of the great battles of of childhood is to learn impulse control and how to fight for joy, uh, to to do battle with the lusts of your flesh. Mm. I want to be moody. Don't <laughs> say no. I can't. In Christ, you can, right? And just realizing that when you begin to realize if I will walk by faith and not by hormones, <laughs> then like there there is the the ability to see God do his work in in me. And then as you come into the season of, of adulthood to, to joyfully take on those, those roles and responsibilities, if you've been called to singleness, use it. You know, I'm called to singleness. That's why I live in my mom's basement and play video games all day. <laughs> no, no. You, you feel called to laziness and you're not. I know because God doesn't call us to that. Uh, if you've been called to a life of singleness, how are you being more effective in your singleness in what you believe God's calling you to than you would have in, in marriage, for example. And, and if you're not called to singleness to, to not artificially delay out of fear, or again, out of a, a, a lack of, of good stewardship responsibility out of laziness, or are you artificially delaying that season where you take upon yourself the goal of establishing a household and raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and serving the church and being useful to him um, how are you learning how to be a, a minister of the gospel? Um, 
whether it's it's in childhood and articulating it to your friends and ministering there as you get older and your your horizons begin to expand are you prayerfully considering from your neighbor to the ends of the earth how you can be involved in in the progress of the gospel there up into seasons of old life where it begins to transition and you begin to accept realities that your horizons will begin to shrink a little bit as energy and strength and mm. resources become become limited and to accept those so those providences of God but to lean into the opportunity that that season affords uniquely for mentorship for discipleship for the passing on of wisdom for the the coming alongside and training of those who are are following after you and uh, I, I think if if we can paint a picture of what that looks like in in daily life um, then I we might be surprised at um, what that what that would mean for the perception of of the Christian faith in our culture even if it makes it more hated mm, right yes. which it, which it might. Um, but but it, I think it would take what is this this uh, vague notion, uh, and it would all of a sudden crystallize it. Uh, you think about in the early church, it was known as the way, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it was known as the way because Jesus called himself the way, but also because they understood that it was a way of living, right? And and so they identified people. Oh, you're one of those people who lives like this, and it. And it there was, you know, some really weird ideas too, where they thought that they were cannibalistic and <laughs> some weird things because of the parts they didn't understand <laughs> exactly. But but they could also single out, um, hey, do you see that person up on that hill who's looking for the babies that were abandoned? That's probably one of those Christians. You know, I'm I'm reminded a book I've been reading, rereading, uh, came out fifteen probably fifteen years ago, but I uh, won't get too much into the book itself, but I'm just reminded of this call that even to your point, even if the world dislikes us, at least it's for a good reason, right? They might think we're yeah. weird, but, but my goodness, right. it, but let them, let them dislike us for, yeah. for looking like Christ as opposed feel to angsty about the church, but specifically <laughs> hate us. <laughs> but, but I, I think it's interesting. Like, uh, it might even on the show at one point we we're talking about Jesus and, and somebody, you know, talked about, you know, they, they hated him, but you know what? Some people hated him. People mm -hmm. that were in power, the religious elite hated him. Mm -hmm. uh, and he didn't pull any punches in rebuking them. The no. political elites were threatened by him. But, you know, the sinners and publicans, the prostitutes, the the normal people, the merchants, um, they were drawn to him. Now, whether or not they accepted him was a personal choice, mm -hmm. right? But they were drawn to him. They did. Uh, children were drawn to him. There's something about the way Jesus carried himself that he spoke truth, but he brought healing. He brought he brought tenderness. You can't imagine that he was austere and when he healed people, that just wouldn't be consistent. It wouldn't even be logical. And, and so there was a, the, the, those that hated him were the people that were trying to selfishly protect or cling to what they had. And they thought that he threatened it. And in some cases he absolutely mm -hmm. did. Yeah. But I, I just think that, you know, this notion of it, let's, let, let's be a people that mm -hmm. at least if they hate us, it's because they, those guys look like Jesus did. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, far better than, than they hate us because you guys say one thing, but you don't live it. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Right. That would be a problem. And I think sometimes the other thing too, sometimes we're, we're not, we're not even, what's far worse. We're not even hated. They don't even know we're believers. Right. In fact, it's when they think we're cultists. 
you know, like many of the other actual cultists in the region, um, because, you know, they're good people. They're good neighbors. They have no idea why. Uh, we've not shared the hope that is within mm-hmm. us. And I think for our kids, let us, let us, um, let us try to cultivate homes and let's try to cultivate a church, a, a, a body, the body of Christ. Let's try to cultivate a culture that is known for being active and not just crazy active, busy to be busy, but active because we're in the, we're on the Lord's, we're in the Lord's business where we're attending to his priorities. The, um, but I think we get distracted. I'm, I'm actually kind of thrilled in some ways. I mean, this is our last, this is, we're on 10, right? 10 command. We'll, yep. we'll transition here in a sec. Um, and maybe this is our transition, but, uh, the way this series started was a conversation that we had here in the, in the, in the room earlier this year about there's so many things that can occupy our time, affection, and allegiance, even good things. But what's most important? And I think sometimes the enemy of what's most important are all the other good things. And it's easy to become distracted. And mm-hmm. I'm reminded as I was uh, digging into this this term, um, acedia, and I... I uh, w- I don't know if we're pronouncing it right, but the guys that wrote it are dead, so we don't yeah. know. Um, so there, but uh, none of them have corrected us. One of the writers about this says that um, we live in an age of distraction, moving uh, an age that is constantly moving my attention to something that is not what we need to do right now. The business at hand. And I think we can all relate to this. You know, me, I got to go, got to go paint that room, but oh my goodness, I need to check on the news, see what's really going on in the world. Right. And, <laughs> and not in, and, and, and being distracted. I think there are spiritual distractions too. Yeah. Um, the Lord's called me to, to go share the gospel with my neighbor and, um, and not simply to just throw verses at him, but actually build a relationship. And to share who I am, who I belong to, who bought me with the price. And that's why I'm different, but it doesn't mean I dislike you. And now I got to live it. That's the hard part, right? But that's, that's, that's the gospel. That's sharing the gospel with them, not just preaching it, but letting them see the Lord work through us. Um, but we get distracted. Oh, I don't know. I'm not ready. I need to go write, read those apologetics books because what if you ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Uh, what if some kind of debate comes up that I don't have answers to? Um, all those things could come up. Statistically speaking, they probably won't really come up in that first conversation because that would be weird. Uh, most people don't operate that way. But I just think that's really interesting about the distractions and kind of back to our series on the Ten Commandments, getting back to what matters most, God's word. A um, couple other things that came up uh, in, in, in preparing not that we do all that much preparation for the show, but you know, getting our heads straight for for our conversation today is the present moment. I think Mm -hmm. that's really interesting too. Um, Do you ever feel like I kind of grew up feeling this way. I was in a constant state of preparation for something. And the many times so focused on the preparation, I'm not focused on what's actually happening right now. And I'm not saying we shouldn't prepare. um, But it does remind me of a conversation I had on the mission field years and years ago with a fella named Ringo uh, local where we were living at the time. And, uh, I was a project manager uh, by trade. That was my title. And as we were planning out all these different things that needed to happen in order to get this project done, um, some of the local guys had questions like, why are we ordering this now? We don't need it for eight months. I'm like, well, it takes eight months to get here. You know, those kinds of conversations. <laughs> and um, and Ringo, um, although he may not be considered sophisticated by Western terms, had great wisdom 
uh, for his age. And Ringo brought up uh, this this observation. He's like, you know, back in North America, um, you people, like if you didn't plan at the right time, uh, you would die later that year. I'm like, yep, that is true. And he says here, um, things just grow. We don't have to plan anything. But he did bring up in that conversation, he said, but you guys are always thinking about the future and you often miss the present. And I think culturally speaking, there's a lot of truth to that. That is not an indictment of planning ahead and preparing. But if that's all you're doing and you're missing the here and now, um, if I might borrow mm. a line from that great thinker, um, John Lennon, <laughs> I could tell <laughs> you knew it was coming, if you right? Quote, imagine though, <laughs> you're off the porch. Life is what happens while you're making other plans. <laughs> and that is so true about most Western people. And I think I think, I'm not trying to say don't prepare. We ought to always be preparing, but don't forget that the ministry at mm. hand and walking in the spirit is about the now as well. Relation, my relationship with God is about now. And, and so don't become distracted. Don't, don't let the preparation that I believe is correct. Obviously we're all in a mm-hmm. process of sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Those of us who've been bought by the blood of Christ and, uh, and we're, we've been saved by his grace. Uh, he's in the process of sanctifying us, transforming us, changing us into, into his likeness and praise God for that. That is a process, but in the midst of it, things, let's not just wait until that. Oh, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Because all of a sudden, the time is gone, and the opportunity is squandered. And I dare say I'm convicted and even concerned about this in my own life. If I've not practiced ministry in my day-to-day life, what makes me think I'm going to get around to it 10 years from now? If I've not practiced the joy of the Lord making and relying on Him and His strength to walk through my interactions of the day with my wife and my kids and my neighbors and coworkers and my brothers in the Lord. If I'm not practicing that today, then I'm not going to just suddenly do it <laughs> 10 years from now. No. If, I, if I'm so focused on, on amassing whatever I can in order that someday I can, then I will do ministry. I can, you know, quit this rat race that I'm on and then I will do ministry. What you're practicing today is what you'll do in the future. And, and so I think with that in mind, I, you know, I want to get back to uh, what is most important. We've got our 10th commandment today. And I think a good transition from what we were just talking about is one of these characteristics of um, acedia is a constant state of comparing. Boy, that guy has something I don't have. And now I'm dissatisfied. This and the, these concepts were kind of written about in the sixth century. So they didn't have Instagram yet, but we talk <laughs> about that, right? The Facebook life. And man, look at them. They're on vacation again. I never get to go on vacation instead of being happy for them. Well, praise God, they got to go on vacation. And also praise God, I don't have the debt they probably have to pay for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm being a little cynical there. But, but I think that idea of the constant comparing that happens. Um, this just happened over a dinner table in a local family known as the Larmors, where someone got a slightly bigger portion than someone else. <laughs> and the person who'd already had their portion, who'd been happy until that moment, hey, why did they get that? <laughs> you know, the comparison is the enemy of joy um, instead of being grateful in the moment. So hopefully I've set up something <laughs> there in that transition for our for our, our 10th commandment today. Yeah. And it's a it's a good transition. And it, it's about another one of these these issues that is so fundamental in so many levels. You know, we've talked, I think, through a lot of these commandments. 
everything falls apart. Even the, the, the speech we listened to earlier, he was you know, describing, this is known to be very harmful for the individual, <laughs> utterly was fatal. It, fatal for a civilization <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and we've been noticing that, that these commands encapsulate not only what is necessary for the health and life of the individual, but also for the cohesion and survival of a society. Mm -hmm. uh, if you pull these things away, things will fall apart. One of the challenges that we're seeing uh, in the battle of worldviews today is uh, externalizing what this commandment is, internalizes. Mm. Uh, we all have those times when we see a disparity or we at least just feel a, a longing for what we don't have. You know, it's interesting too to see people who have much be like, well, I know I have 10 of those, but I, he's got one, but I, I like his better, <laughs> you know, and uh, no matter what station you are in life, you can look at somebody else and say, I want what they have. And, and sometimes those who have all the things look at other people and say, I, what I really want is peace, <laughs> happiness. Um, what do you do with that? Right. That, that sense of something's, something's off or something's amiss, or I desire something. Uh, what I think has made, what is in so many ways a very odd worldview system called Marxism mm. that um, that is under underlying a lot of um, a lot of the movements in our in our culture in particular pretty much any movement that has the word critical that appears in it has <laughs> has Marxist undertones mm. and it's a it's a materialistic way of viewing the world uh, but what he did is he said okay what has to explain this feeling this sense of um, of oppression, of lack, is is something broken out there, uh, something something evil out there. And if I can go find it and kill it, then maybe I'll feel better. And and that's that's Marxism in a nutshell. That what explains the the disparities in society, real or perceived, are structures. In Marx's case, economic structures. Um, that, that entrench these, these, um, these disparities between various groups. And if you can go destroy whatever institutions out there are, are putting the, these structures in place, then this, this world where, ah, oh, we're all, we're all equal can emerge. And, and it, it's always very fuzzy at that end stage, how exactly that emerging is supposed to happen. It just sort of seems to assume the general goodness of the human heart and it'll just happen. Um, but, but if we, we see this all around us, we've got to destroy all these institutions because they are places where, um, cisgendered heteronormativity has become entrenched, where socioeconomic disparities have become entrenched, where racial segregation has become entrenched, where just, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, and what the 10th commandment does is say, stop looking out there for a solution to your problem. Uh, don't anticipate that if your neighbor has a house, wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything <laughs> that you don't have or you wish you had, don't assume that you're supposed to have one. And that if you can find whatever system in society gave him one and not you and destroy it, so then you both get half a donkey that now now you're going to be happy it says stop coveting don't mm -hmm. do it uh, and and i want to get into a a related question that this gives rise to but i want to start with 
the the command itself not to covet because that's hard right that that's hard when we see things that we love we desire uh that others may be possessing may be enjoying and perhaps even uh who don't even care about those things they just have them and you want them so desperately and you don't have them and that can be everything from physical possessions to even health um intelligence whatever um what is the foundation for the Christian for a covet-free heart? Mm. And then I want to, after we answer this, I want to springboard to what does the Christian do in response to injustice or disparity in the world? Does this commandment tell us that those things don't matter? Mm. But I want to start with what is the, what is the foundation of a covet-free, coveting-free heart? Um. Before I answer it, one more clarification <laughs> on that. I, Fair enough. I think a lot of times we think of covetousness as coveting the assets of someone else. And that is not the extent of this. You can covet no. friendships, relationships, experiences. The fact that Jeff Bezos covets, and we know he does because he is a human, um, you hear this from the the wildly successful mm-hmm. at times that they actually covet that they don't know if someone is really their friend or not. Are they just after my stuff or to benefit in some way from my friendship? You hear this a lot in the celebrity class. Um, you hear this. Um, it, it, so it's not just about money. I think the idea of even if even if we were all living on a desert island. Um, for a time, because we wouldn't last long, uh, equally had nothing in terms of assets or wealth, there would still be coveting, um, covet of a friendship or somebody's taller than me so they can reach the coconuts or something, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so True I think complete equality is not actually possible. Not possible. Which means the delta, the delta of covetousness will always be potential. <laughs> Reminds me, I got to give you that pair of socks I bought you, the Fahrenheit 451 ones. Um, if you know the book, then you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, equality of everything, right? Uh, uh, and in terms of the writings and right. whatnot, there was another short story that was so good about about this. But the, yeah, true equality is not possible. And so with that in mind, I would say that, um, for the believer, I must find my contentment in him and him alone and the circumstances that he's brought into my life. I, I know that he has prepared me for those and I can rely on him through those circumstances, whether I abase or abound um, whether I am, I feel alone in my human relationships or I f- I'm in the moment of, you know, those blissful holiday moments when we're all together and everything is right. And the snow's even perfectly falling outside the windows there. Um, in the midst of all those situations, my contentment must be found in him. And that, and that when the joys come and I think of so many moments with my kids and Anita, those joyful moments, I praise him for those because they're gifts from him. And in those more difficult times where maybe it feels as if he's taking things away, I still need to thank him and find my fulfillment and contentment in him. It's not about the circumstances because he is the one um, that I can trust in through those. So um, maybe that's an answer or maybe it's just part of an answer. But I think that that fulfillment of, of who he is 
and I am his child and uh, I am a co-heir and I don't deserve any of it. Um, in fact, I was his enemy, but he loves me, not just the church. He obviously loves his body, his bride. He loves me, loves Nate and gave himself for me. Um, finding my contentment in that. And that does that mean that I will never covet again? Unfortunately, probably not, but I need to continually, when that comes up, confess it, repent it, repent of it. It was nailed to his cross and get back to who he is. Yeah. And I I appreciated how you outlined that because it, it gets the direction correct where I think uh, we keep hoping, whether it's joy, whether it's contentment, we keep hoping that we can create that reality in our hearts from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And and from a, a, for a lot of, excuse me, through a lot of different means, we we might s- seek to do that um, from everything from, from medication and therapy and friendships and hobbies and activities and experiences to retail therapy and possessions and, like and position. Retail therapy. <laughs> um, I've tried that one in my, in my life. <laughs> we just I went through a massive cultural spasm of that in Amazon <laughs> Prime Day that just happened. Where Oh, my. Yes. Yeah. I was on there, too. Um, but things I needed, of course, in order to be more content. <laughs> yes. What is this? It's on sale. Buy it. Woo! Look shiny. Yeah. Click, click, click. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but that that hope that through some means I can secure this. In the church, we do this too. I hope that that next men's conference, the next book, the next podcast, mm-hmm. that next video, that next sermon, that next church group, that next Bible study, that next life group, that that's going to push joy, push contentment into me. And it's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are things that have to be produced from the inside out. This is, as we've discussed multiple times today, it's a fruit of the spirit. It's something that God has to produce Mm. in us. We can thwart that work by quenching the spirit, by grieving the spirit, by walking in disobedience that the Bible warns us against that, um, or we can cooperate with that work. And I think that there's a, a kind of dying to self inherit in this command that is super scary and super freeing. To, to readjust your expectations, I don't need any of those things, hmm. or I don't need any of those people, or I don't need any of those fill in the blank. All I need is my God. And it's really, really scary at, time, at times to, to say that and try to mean it. Because we're afraid as soon as we say that God might take it. Mm, yeah, Amen. Right. I, I relate to that. It's one of those things like so many times you're in church worshiping and you're yeah. sing through a line. <laughs> and as I sing it, I'm asking Lord, I'm singing this, but please help me be this way. Cause <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. those, those, um, I mean, there's just so many, uh, so many, pa- uh, whether in modern music or in old, old legacy music, there's just so many lines in there that, that speak to painful times and being grateful for them. It's like, Oh man, that's a tough one. I yeah. think you're right though. The moment we do have this sense and and God certainly has the right and power to do whatever he chooses, but he's never going to violate his own character. It doesn't mean no. we won't go through hard times, but sometimes we do have this sense 
that, oh, because he knows I enjoy something, he's going to take it away. Right. Now, just to prove a point. Yeah. And, and you <laughs> so. know, Jesus said, you know, he, you know, if he, you who are evil parents, right, you yeah. don't hand your kid a snake or a stone when they're hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean we won't encounter hard times. The Lord himself encountered the ultimate hard times. Yeah. Um, he was homeless and um, he was despised. At times he was tortured. Mm-hmm. He was murdered. Uh, he went hungry at times. He went through everything that we have been tempted in or, or gone through. He mm-hmm. experienced. Uh, and yet he was not covetous in any way whatsoever. No. Um, in fact, he regarded equality with God itself, not a thing to be grasped. Yeah. And, uh, and look at the joy, but for the joy set before him, exactly. we come back to joy, joy, joy. And so I just, I think it is, it is really challenging in in any in anywhere you live, whether it's in the abundance of the West, mm-hmm. which we enjoy, and we thank God for that abundance, um, or whether it's in the very limited resources of the third world. There right. are believers there as well. Um, I do think, though, the simpler life is, the more joy it is. I really do think that, having experienced that in the third world, but even there. It's not that mm-hmm. they're free from covetousness, right? No. Even there. Um, but it, it tends get, to take a different different direction. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so much about stuff because there isn't stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Although although a lot of times they live, at, at least where, I, where I've worked and lived, a lot of times that intense poverty is in such close proximity to unbelievable wealth. Sometimes it is literally across the street. Right. Um, but anyway, that, I don't want to create that as a distraction. I just go back to... To the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's him. It's him. It's him. Finding our fulfillment and our joy in him. But to your point, the walk of faith is not easy. It's a little scary. Uh, in fact, it's very scary at times that I don't know what's around this corner, but God, you're leading me there. And I want to be a Jesus follower, which means I follow you. And sometimes I don't know where that's going to go. Right. Um, I think the most obvious example of this is when you're going through, well, I think probably the most common example is when you have to have a hard conversation with someone and you want to make sure you have it all lined up. My goodness, Nita and I have had more pre-meetings preparing for hard conversations with like, you know, wherever you're at. Right. And, and she and I are over communicators. We talk about everything and mm-hmm. we talk at length about everything. And, uh, and so we've, you know, without even meaning to, we've kind of had these, these pre-meetings, right? Like I got to go talk to so-and-so about this hard topic. And then we kind of talk it through. We have like this little mock conversation between us. Um, I still need to go do it. And sometimes, <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, you know, that's, that's the key is I got to, by faith, I'm not and this is not a call to not prepare. I think it's appropriate to prepare. God's given us gifts to prepare for things, but you just got to also trust in him yeah, and, um, and get self out of the way and trust in him and follow him into these situations. And I think the reality of it is while they're scary, some of the most unbelievable joyful times have been when he walks you into a situation that you don't know how it's going to turn out, but you get to see him work and you get to be a part of his work. Amen to that. And that, that frees you up for that kind of life. You know, that I think it's one of the unsung benefits of this, this particular command is the the man who is content. Um, he's unbribable. He's undistractable, right? He, he has, a contentment and a joy that he can carry with him into the fire 
um, this is actually the person who is then in, a be- in the best position to address where oppression, where unrighteousness, where injustice actually exists because he's not self-seeking. Mm-hmm. And so he, he isn't bothered by the existence of inequalities in the world. Like we discussed, you know, you might try to make everything else equal. Someone's still going to be shorter and someone's still going to be taller, <laughs> but he will be attuned. Like God says to, to doing justly, loving mercy and walking humbly with God. And, and that's the person who can then go and advocate and work on behalf of those who are on the receiving end of injustice. And how much more effective is that? Then think of so many of the movements in our own culture where it's mobs of people in a self-seeking interest that are trying to get for themselves what they want. And, and I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, but it has been so sad to see so many movements um, from the Me Too movement to BLM to you, you fill in the blank, call it going back to Occupy Wall Street, mm-hmm. to see so many of these movements that are done in the name of injustice just absolutely brush under the rug so much actual injustice. Yeah. And what remains on the surface is just envy, just covetousness, just greed. And it it just happens over and over and over again. Not because injustice doesn't actually exist. It does, but you won't see it when you're self-seeking. And so for the, even at a societal level, a content people becomes a, an environment for a righteous people uh, to 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 remain. And, and how do we, you know, how do we inculcate that into our children? I don't think it's by forcing austerity on them, right? Mm. No Christmas presents <laughs> for the next five years. You will, will be, be no content. Fun. Yeah, that that's not it, right? That that's not what we're going for. But there's a heart that um, is their gratitude. And the instant that gratitude disappears, whether it's because they got a gift and you didn't, because they got a bigger portion, you didn't going after that heart of ingratitude because it, you can't by manipulating the stuff in their life, produce contentment in their heart. You have to go, okay, that was just a great opportunity to reveal a covetousness in your heart. Let's go, let's go back and deal with the heart issue there. It's interesting about those movements. I'm always very wary of movements <laughs> and anything man-made, even the good movements. I'm very wary of it. Very, yeah. uh, uh, I don't want to say skeptical, but it's rare to find a movement that didn't end up enriching some at the expense of many. And even in these movements of the last few years, well, I agree with some of the issues that were put on banners and signs. I mean, you'd have to be a fool to say that some of these issues weren't are not real. Um, what we've seen is the movements lead to right. the enriching of a few at the expense of others, right. and which in and of itself is a mm-hmm. terrible injustice. And uh, and that's a, that's a terrible thing. What I think is is particularly special about the Christian life. What's special and unique about the life that Jesus calls us to is it is selfless. I mean, that's what he exhibited. Mm-hmm. He emptied himself and he calls us to do the same. And that's a little painful to to not place me at the center of my universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, what you will find, I think oftentimes is the, uh, the man who is content, the woman who is content, they tend to be the most generous because they aren't clinging to this stuff. Yeah. And uh doesn't mean, and some might say, oh, are you, you know, that, that could lead to wastefulness. And uh, it could. Um, 
uh, which the risk we're willing to take. No, good. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But I think uh, I think when you find someone that is really content, not because of their circumstances or because of the dollars in the checking account or whatever the deal is, not de- despising any of that. I mean, I I'd be a hypocrite if I said I didn't you know involve myself in those things. Um, but to f- to find my contentment in that is going to lead to so many parables that Jesus himself taught about issues and problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think um, the general talk about how we want the world to see us. I think they want not, not just recognize us by all the things we don't do. Cause there's a lot of so-called good people who don't follow Christ that don't do drugs, don't get drunk. You know, all those things. Yeah. How, they don't smoke or whatever those things are. Don't smoke, are. don't chew, yeah. don't go out with girls that do. That's right. And they're even generous. They might even give a little bit to charity. Um, <laughs> but So that's not the only part of our testimony, although God has called us to be holy because he is holy. Uh, not in our own strength, but through the power of his spirit who he has blessed us with and indwells us. But he is also, uh, what, what, is, what is the most profound testimony is the love that Jesus showed. And I'm being real specific about the love Jesus showed because I think love gets thrown around a lot. We know that. Yeah. We talked about that on the show. But that selfless love where he, his love was evident. You could see it. He didn't just feel it. It led to healing the sick. It led to uh, compassionate acts. It led to ultimately his sacrifice on the cross. And I think for us... If the, if the world's going to hate us, let it be, hate us because we're weird, because we do things that are against our own self-interest, because it's for the benefit of others and it's for the glory of the Lord. Amen. Well, we've also answered another question here on the podcast today, and that is, if you subtract Caleb's conversation <laughs> out of our podcast, somehow it gets longer. Yeah. Well, well, last week was a record, right? But he left yeah, early. He did. So, so this is his fault. Interesting. We're, Caleb, we're going to have to, we're going to do like a word search. I'm sure there's some Google algorithm. Maybe you know, so. Some supercomputer. Although I did get feedback from two <laughs> podcast listeners, one local and one not local, that both let us know that they made it to the end Ooh, of the podcast. Very good. Congrats. The, yes. So... One one expressed gratitude for the podcast. The other was said, "What's my prize?" So you can take that as you will. I won't take that as a complaint, though. I was afraid it was going to be like, "What were you thinking?" Uh, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that's a good place, probably, for us to wrap up. Unless you had any last thoughts you wanted to pitch in. No, no. Okay. I, I I think I've said way too much already. <laughs> no, it's been it's been good, and we've added a new word to our lexicon for daily usage here, and and. Do we want to officially recommend the British or the... Uh, British is always cooler. You know. So, Asadi. Uh, yeah, or is it Asadi? I, I have to go listen Asadi. to Mr. Murray again. But yes. uh, if you read the blogs and the folks that are experts in this sort of experts, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, I, I think the pronunciation is Asidia. Asidia. <laughs> so work that into a conversation at least twice this week. And work it out of our lives Mm -hmm. as we seek to walk before the Lord with the contentment and the joy that comes from finding all our sufficiency in him alone. 